Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? Then they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated. There is a movement among what would like to be called evangelical Christianity, called the Red Letter Christians. It was started by Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo, and uh, Russell Moore has put his imprimatur on it. It is a, a movement that basically says, your Bible is the words of Christ in red. The, the red letters in your Bible, that is, that is what God is really saying. Don't worry about all that black letter stuff. It's just kind of window dressing. The, the, the real scripture is the red letters. This has become a fairly popular movement, but it is heretical. According to, uh, admittedly, some of those black letters, when talking about all of the scripture... The Apostle of Jesus Christ speaks of Scripture in these terms. 
Talking to Timothy, Paul writes, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. In other words, all of them. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or... If you translate it literally, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. It partakes of the very nature of the Holy Spirit, who is the real author of the Scripture. God has breathed it out. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is spoken of the scriptures. It is not spoken of the red letters. This red letter Christianity is a heresy, and it is not Christ glorifying in any way. I say this to set up, though, that there is a certain paradox to that in that Uh, The red letters are what Jesus did speak, and the gospel writers do organize their material in such a way that oftentimes the words directly from our Lord are kind of the, um, the, the point that everything goes to. I mean, you do have God in flesh, and God in flesh is talking, and while all Scripture is absolutely God breathed, and all Scripture is God speaking, there does tend to be something poignant about the fact that God in flesh is now talking. In the Gospel of John, if you were to be scanning this first chapter for that first moment where our Lord speaks, you would find it in verse 38 where uh, Jesus speaks to two disciples of John who have just heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God. And they have gone to him and spoken to him. And Jesus speaks for the very first time in the Gospel of John and says, What do you want? It's a paraphrase. What are you seeking? But he's asking, Why are you here? We have already looked at the Gospel of John and how John will several times in the the course of writing this book tell you, I know that you already know the material in the Synoptic Gospels. I know that you have basically heard the Gospel of Christ as it's been generally presented, and I'm filling in holes. This seems to be very similar to that theme. The very first words that approach us from our Lord himself is, what are you doing here? What, what's brought you here? The, the men whom he's talking to are already religious people. They are covenant members. They are in the visible church, as we Reformed people would talk about it. They have received the sacraments of the covenant. They have grown up in Israel. Uh, They are now disciples of John. They have been receiving uh, fairly healthy religious instruction. But now these religious people 
who are seeking, I mean, they're disciples, are now confronted with being in the presence of God in flesh himself, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the first thing Jesus says to them is, what do you want? What, what's on your heart? What brought you here? It's a poignant question. And it's not exactly what you would have expected the Lord to ask them. Um, but it really does strike at what needs to be asked. One of the first things that really struck me hard when I was a, a young minister in my first church was there would be about a hundred people that would gather on a Lord's Day. They would gather into God's church. And as I got to know them, I came to realize there was about 85 different reasons they had come. I didn't expect that. I, I was under the impression that people were coming because this was where we assembled with Christ. We met him in his word and in his means of grace. And they were coming to be in the presence of their Redeemer. That's what was drawing them out. And that was true of some of them. But it wasn't really true of all of them. In fact, it was amazing how many different reasons brought people out to church on a Lord's Day. There were those who came seeking a word from God. There were those who came to be in his presence. But there were also those who came because their boss attended this church, and it was a pretty good idea for business to come. There were those who came because they were looking for some temporal benefit, or they were lonely, or it's what they had been taught to do. They had been raised, church was part of what you did, so you went to church. And so every Lord's Day, when I would look out over the assembled visible church, I had to realize not everybody's here for the same reason, and many of them not correct reasons. So uh, Jesus looks at these disciples and says, what are you doing here? What's on your mind? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, uh, coming to church and coming into the very presence of Jesus is not the exact same thing. And you are, to a certain degree, correct. But according to Scripture, in Matthew chapter 18, uh, we have this promise from our Lord. In Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20, we read, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So on a Lord's Day, God's people assemble as the church, and they assemble in his name, and one of the central things we do is pray. So we have Jesus' promise that in a very real way, uh, this is where he's going to be. So people are coming to him on a Lord's Day. And when the Apostle Paul writes about what the church is in 1 Timothy, uh, this is how he describes it. Um, this is chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, 
But if I am delayed, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the apostle talks about the church, which is not this physical building. It is the assembly of people. And he says the church is the very house of God, and it's supposed to be a pillar and foundation for the truth. Well, Christian, what is the truth? Or perhaps I should ask you, who is the truth? Because what does Jesus say of himself in John chapter 14, verse 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So while it's not exactly the same thing, coming into the assembly of the saints, as coming into the bodily presence of our Lord, kind of is. Because that's why you ought to be coming. Jesus Christ promised to be here. This is his house. This is the foundation of the truth, and he is the truth. So you would think that people coming here on a Lord's Day would be coming because the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, is present, and that's what they want. But that's not a given. And Jesus looks at these disciples and says, what are you doing here? Their answer should have reflected what their teacher John had been telling them The next day, we read, John looks at Jesus of Nazareth, who is there, and says of him, Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, that has been his theme for quite a while now. If you drop back a couple verses, John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus asks, what are you doing here? He's kind of given them a very low ball to hit. Because John's already told them what they really ought to want and need. What is the human condition? The human condition is that outside of redemption, you are alienated from your creator. You are a slave of sin you are captured by sin, you are its slave, and you are in desperate need of reconciliation, eternal heaven or eternal hell absolutely depends upon reconciliation, and reconciliation is going to come through a sacrifice. If you have been raised in God's covenant, you know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. John looks at Jesus of Nazareth and says, God himself has provided a lamb that will take away the sins of the world, and that is your problem. That is what you desperately need, no matter how rich you are or poor you are, no matter how lucky you are or unlucky you are. You are in utter, utter need of reconciliation with God, forgiveness of your sins. That is the thing you need. And John says, there it is. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. There's only one. It's singular. There he is. And they go to him, and he asks what he wants. 
And the right answer would have been, uh, we want the Lamb of God to take away our sins. I mean, that's, that's what they really, really need. But that's not their answer. I guess it would be a little awkward. I mean, you are looking at God in the flesh, but you're only seeing the flesh. But, again, you've had this easy lob, and what, what do I want? Well, Rabbi, um, where are you staying? There's a huge gulf between those things. John says, here is eternal salvation. Here is deliverance into a life of peace and, and, and love with your creator. And they say, uh, we're, we're of the opinion you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, and um, we were kind of wondering where you were staying. We'd like to spend some time with you. Huge chasm between those things. You would think that Jesus would respond to that answer fairly negatively. But our second bit of red letter, the second thing our Lord says, after really honestly receiving an answer that is way lower than it ought to have been, is come and see. And that is exactly what they do. John tells us it is a lovely rest of the day with the Word of God made flesh, with the Word, the light, the life, who was with God in the beginning, who was made man, who was the most significant event that God ever did. It was a nice rest of the day. And then um, afterwards, there seems to be some separation between them. Huh. You would have thought it'd be a little bit more grandiose than that, but it's not. They have effectively tried Jesus. Years ago, I'm talking about 1970s, 1980s, there was a... uh, a fad, and of course fads flow through the Christian church like air through a breezy house, but there was a fad where the evangelicals were saying, you really should try Jesus. I mean, you know, you're kind of skeptical, it's a skeptical age, but come and try Jesus, be in his presence, enjoy the things of God, and we'll guarantee you, if you try Jesus, you're going to like what you try. The Reformed response was, that's ridiculous. You are talking about God himself. You're talking about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You don't try Jesus the way you think, yeah, you know, I'll try a new brand of soda. And so we responded pretty negatively to that, and there are reasons to respond negatively. But I think we may have slightly overreacted. Because when Jesus is told... You know, we see you as a, as a rabbi, and John spoke well of you. Uh, we'd like to spend some time with you and see what that's like. Jesus said, okay, come spend some time. And that's what happens. These are two future apostles. We're told that one of them is Andrew. 
the brother of Simon Peter, he will become an apostle eventually. We are not told who the other guy is, which seems to tell us it's John the Apostle, because the entire gospel is written from kind of the bashful author point of view. There will be several places where John will say, you know, there is this disciple Jesus loved. He's not himself, but he's not using his name. Well, here, John says, you know, there were two disciples of John, and one of them was Andrew. Well, he's basically telling you, I'm the other one. So both of these guys are ultimately going to be apostles. But right now, they're just kind of seekers. They're disciples of John the the Baptist. They are given the glorious benefit of spending the day with our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives of his life uh, to them for the rest of that day. And then there's a bit of a cooling off time. Jesus allows that. What's going on here? We are used to the idea that evangelism and discipleship are two different things. The way we use those terms, you can hear in our mind there's a break. And if if you're a member of New Hope Reformed Church, you know where I'm going next, but nevertheless, just sit through it again. Jesus doesn't really make a distinction between discipleship and evangelism. When you look at how Jesus evangelizes, Jesus calls disciples to himself, and a huge number of these disciples, when they start off as disciples, are not converted people. They are truth seekers. They are seeking, uh, they think, God, but some of them will end up walking away. Some of them, especially when we get to chapter 6 here in John, we're going to be told a bunch of disciples didn't believe, and Jesus knew they didn't believe, and they're going to walk away from Jesus and never come back. To be a disciple is not necessarily to be a believer. Just like being a member of a church is not guarantee you to be a believer. But Jesus would draw to himself disciples, and he would walk with them, and he would invest his life in them to the degree that they would. He would, he would evangelize them by discipling them. And then converted people would not stop being disciples. They'd still walk with Jesus. Evangelism and discipleship, biblically, are so interwoven, you really can't tear them apart. You never see Jesus do anything like carry a tract that says, seven steps to the redeemed life taken from the prophets, and read people through the seven steps and give them the tract. That that doesn't happen. Jesus invests his life into people. He makes them disciples. They walk with him or they don't. And along the way of walking with him, God converts them. God is absolutely sovereign in whom he converts, and he converts disciples who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is what you are seeing happen right here. An interesting question comes up. Of the the 12 men who will become apostles, when do the 11 of them that get converted get converted? If someone were to, to ask you, now, when did Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, 
When was the moment God gave them true saving faith and they were brought from death to life? When was that? What would you, what would you answer? When were the apostles converted? Most who've dwelt on the question would say that the answer is what you see in Matthew chapter 16. There, Jesus has uh, walked with these men. He's even designated them apostles at this point. But he has taken them out of the promised land for a while, up north, and he is spending time really discipling them intensely. And we take up the story in chapter 16 and verse 19. Uh, I do think we do that. Yes. Oh, 13. Take it up in 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, who's dead at this point, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but, in contradistinction to the crowds, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter is speaking for everybody because Jesus has spoken in the plural, who do y'all say I am? And Peter speaks for everybody and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us that you believe in your heart and you speak with your mouth. Well, that's what seems to be happening here. They're giving an absolute affirmation. Who are you? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have been expecting the prophet, the priest, and the king, the one guy who's going to do all those three ministries and will be God's answer of salvation. That's you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you have a sovereign act of God who has revealed this to them. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hade shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Most scholars who are believing, if you ask them when were these men really converted, I mean, if you want to mark down a conversion experience, where was it? They say, this is it. And they're probably right. I mean, this is what conversion looks like. But when did that happen? Well, it was a long way into their walking as disciples. They had been walking with Jesus for a really long time before Christ really confronted them and said, who are you going to say I am? Where are you going to take your stand? And they say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They make the good confession. It is months and months and months after what we just read. That is when their conversion takes place. 
And the reason why most scholars say this is their conversion is because of the the strength of what Peter is saying. You can hear the conviction in his words, you are the Christ. We, We know that, we have been made aware of that, that has been driven into our hearts, you are what God is doing, we will take our stand on Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, right? I mean, you can hear the conviction, right? It's unique, it's special, right? If that's the case, how do you explain what we read with um, Andrew and Simon? One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. That is, we have found the Christ. So Andrew, who months and months and months later, will be standing there with Peter and say, you know, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, we absolutely believe it. Here says to his brother Peter, we found the Christ. So it's kind of the same. Which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, I'm changing your name right now. Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to change your name. It's going to come. You're currently called, you know, this, but you're going to be called that. And that's exactly what happens at the moment of that good confession. But it is really, really stunning that the things that most focus on as this is their conversion, you already had it happen kind of months and months and months later, but before, months and months before. What's going on there? Well, it seems to be a growth of conviction. When Andrew talks to Peter, you can almost hear the breezily easy statement. We are, we're disciples of John, we've been seeking God. Turns out, hey, we found the Messiah. Isn't that great? Months and months later, the weight of what that means is going to be much more awesome. It's going to be much more of a crossing of the Rubicon. And you can kind of hear that in Jesus' response to Peter. I'm going to change your name, but I'm not doing it now. You're going to be a rock. You're going to be a foundational stone. You ain't that yet, but you're going to be. And it's going to come after you have walked with me as a disciple for months and months and months. If you are an evangelical, one of the things that uh, you will emphasize is there is a salvatory moment. There is a moment where people pass from death to life. You can't, just, uh, you can't just kind of float through the church and have religious things happen, and you don't really have personal faith. There has to be that moment where you leave the world, right? There has to be that moment where you cross the Rubicon and you say, I have decided to follow Jesus We Reformed people know the reason why you do that is because God gave you grace, but there has to be that moment where you cross the Rubicon. It's part of our preaching, it's part of who we are, and it ain't wrong. 
But it's interesting to look at the apostles and trying to figure out exactly when that happened with them. In evangelical preaching, Mark chapter 1 is a watershed for uh, preaching about people leaving the world and coming to Christ. And it's an event that happens some weeks later from what we're looking at here in John. In Mark chapter 1, we read these words, uh, verse 14 through 21a. Now, after John was put in prison, so that gives us our time stamp. Back in the Gospel of John, John's standing right there, and he says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he's in prison, so some time has happened. Uh, It came to pass in those days, 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So there's, there's a call to repent and believe, it's near and dear to our hearts, it's the call of Christ, repent, turn from the world, turn to the kingdom of God in Christ. It's what Jesus is preaching. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, these guys from several weeks before, uh, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. When this is preached on, it is usually preached on, look how suddenly they repented and followed Christ when when just Christ had appeared, uh, it was in all or nothing, walk across the line. They gave themselves to the Lord. They left the boats just sitting there, and they followed him. Uh, isn't that amazing? And that is what people should do. They, they should hear the gospel of Christ. They should immediately be converted and, and zap. They're different. The only thing is, that's not exactly what's happening. Jesus has already talked to John. Jesus has already talked to Andrew several weeks before. He now sees them in their home context. He says, come and follow me. They already have a living expression of Jesus, so they're not following a stranger, and they don't exactly leave their boats for all time at this moment. What is next in chapter 1, verse 21a is, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. So they haven't exactly left their boats forever. They've gone into their hometown. They have followed Jesus, and he's going to teach in their hometown. Um, Are they done with fishing? Well, turns out, no. If you go to Luke chapter 5, you hear about them back at fishing. And they're in Capernaum, and it's only a little bit after this. But they're back at their nets. Turning to chapter 5, which I seem to have unmarked. There we go. 
So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That sounds like spiritual development, right? Uh, Peter has been a disciple of John. He has spent time with Jesus. But there's spiritual development. He's realizing I'm a sinful man. And actually, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you realize who you really are, and that's happening here. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So these are the same people. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, several weeks after Jesus said, Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him, which is not in the Mark passage. See, they just follow him into town. They, they're disciples of Jesus, they're walking with Jesus, they're hearing him teach, but they're still fishermen, and they're still going out fishing. They have not left the world and everything to follow him. But now there is another step as disciples, another crossing of the road, uh, and they forsake all, and they follow him. And so they're done with fishing, right? They are just not going to do that. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now you're fishers of men. We will never see them back on the lake as fishermen again, right? Let's go to after the resurrection. In the Gospel of John, in the last chapter, Jesus has risen from the dead. It is chapter 21. And he is appearing to them over 40 days from time to time and spending time with them, discipling them. They have made the good confession. They have already been converted. But after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. So apparently we're not done. Then they said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. This ought to be playing deja vu in their mind pretty powerfully. 
So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, got, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it in bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. After this, we'll never see them go back to fishing. But there is development, and the Lord Jesus Christ discipling them is causing this development. It starts when they come to him as disciples of John, and Jesus challenges them and says, what do you really want? Why are you religious? Why are you seeking me? Why, why are you here? That is a question every religious person really ought to be asking themselves. You have come to the fellowship of Christ. You have seated yourself among his people. Uh, what are you doing here? I mean, the right answer is God has provided the Lamb of God, which will take away the sins of the world, your answer ought to be, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You ought to depart from me. I desperately need the sins of my part of the world taken away. I am here because I am desperate for the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to be the answer. So we really ought to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? But Jesus is willing to work with those who say, well, John said you're a nice guy and uh, you're a rabbi and we'd really like to learn. And he spends his time discipling us. And he disciples us when we're really only at the point of leaving the nets for a while and going into town. He disciples us when we are coming up to the point of being converted and God converts us. He disciples us after that point. He disciples us even when he's risen from the dead and we don't have much to do, so we go back fishing. Jesus disciples And discipleship and evangelism are just absolutely intertwined. They're not that different. Jesus walks with us, and we are his disciples. And if we are converted, we are believers. But it's not not a completely overlapping group. Jesus is gracious. And the very way he disciples us shows his grace. He is patient. He is kind. At those moments where we really ought to take that low pitch and know he's the all in all and we don't, Jesus walks with us. We are Christians. We own his name. We have his very name on us. And he disciples us kindly, gently, day in, day out, to the moment of our conversion, beyond the moment of our conversion, to the moment he walks us into heaven Jesus the patient, Jesus the kind, asks us, what are you doing here? And he works with the answer. Thanks be to God.